Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Newton podcast. This podcast seeks to share the truth of God's Word through the sermons and other teachings of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Kansas. We hope these episodes will be a blessing to you and your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Before we begin, would you pray with me? God, help us now in this time as you've been helping us to worship you, not only in song and in prayer, but in your word. Help us to receive the message that you want us to receive. Help us to see your word, to read your word, and to understand your word clearly. Help me to present it clearly, to preach it truthfully, and help us all to examine our hearts, our lives, and seek to conform them with your word and your will. So God, in this time, help us, be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The church here in Acts is thriving at this time. The people are filled with the Spirit. They're living in His power. They're continuing to do what they were called to do, to be His witnesses throughout the earth. And right now, they're in Jerusalem. But through their proclamation and their witness, they face some opposition. They face some opposition from those on the outside of them, the religious leaders of the time. Peter and John, last week we saw, were on trial. They were ordered to stop proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection, to stop speaking in his name at all. And and this makes sense to us. We understand this. We understand that the world is going to oppose Jesus and his message. Because those people that told Peter and John to stop are the same ones that opposed Jesus himself. And so for us to think, man, the the world is opposing Christ and his gospel and his message, it, it makes sense to us. But often, we, we ignore or don't pay attention to the reality that there can be opposition come from within the church if we're not careful. There can be opposition in our midst if we're not careful of the gospel going out, the church being healthy. That's what we're going to see this morning, an opposition that comes from within, from those who are a part or at least appear to be a part of the church. And this opposition can manifest itself during a time of growth and and great movements and acts of God like we see here. And it doesn't necessarily show its head in the same way that that the opposition from, from the outside does. It's not always an antagonistic opposition. It can be somewhat stealthy. But it's nonetheless a threat to the church and a threat to the gospel going out. And so that's the opposition we're going to see this morning in our text. We're going to see how the church is thriving. We're going to see how a great testimony of one who is giving their all for Christ. And then we're going to see quite the opposite. We're going to see how this danger comes into the church and this opposition comes into the church. And we're going to see an example not of 
of good but of evil and wickedness play out. A couple, a man and wife, who are not giving their all for Christ, but instead, under the influence of Satan, seek to live for themselves first, and they threaten the growth and unity of the church. But before we get into all that, this text especially, I need to make clear for us something in Scripture. There are passages and texts in Scripture that are descriptive and not prescriptive. So there are texts in Scripture that are describing the way things are happening and what they're doing, but are not necessarily prescribing or prescribing that to us. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see this is what they were doing. This is not necessarily what we have to do exactly. Does that make sense? So a prescriptive text is God is commanding us to do this. This is how you must live. Think of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's prescriptive. We have to do that. This text is an example of a descriptive. This is how the church here in Acts was living how they were seeking to be faithful to God and not necessarily how we must do it exactly. And we'll see that as we go in here. But I needed to make that clear because when we read this, if we go into it thinking, oh, we have to do this exactly the same way, it's going to be kind of hard and may cause a little nervousness for us. But we don't need to be nervous. This is inspired word of God, and it's helpful for us. So even in this descriptive text, there are principles and truths that we can find in it that should lead us to live a certain way. Maybe not exactly the same way they lived, but a certain way that honors and glorifies God. Now to the text. Acts 4, verse 32 is where we'll start, and we'll end in 5.11. It says, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira stole a piece of property. However, He kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. 
Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. So do you see here where it's more descriptive than prescriptive, I hope? So again, the church here is growing and united. That's what we see here. We know the church is growing because we read texts like Acts 2, 47, where they were praising God. They were enjoying the favor of the people, and every day the Lord added to the number of those who are being saved. And we see Peter preaching sermons and thousands of people being saved. So they're growing. And we see here also that they were united. They were together, united in prayer. They were asking for boldness to continue speaking the word of God. And as they did that, likely more people came to faith. And so we read that all those who believed were there together. This is pointing to the reality that all of them there, together and individually, believed in one Lord. They believed that the word of God that they've been proclaiming testifies about Jesus, the only one in whom salvation is found, as Peter said. So they're all together. They're all united. They're growing because they have one Lord. They have one word to proclaim. And so they have the same mind. They were of one heart. They have one mind, it says. And this is pointing to the fact that they were sacrificially generous here which we'll get to in a moment, but, but we need to just understand because they have one Lord, they are of one heart and one mind, and that one heart and mind led them to be sacrificially generous. Their unity and their generosity stems from their faith. But we'll get to the generosity in a moment. We see also that the gospel here was continually preached and taught by the apostles. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I think we need to hear that. They're all united. They're all on the same page. They get it. Yes, Jesus, we believe him. We love him. We, we want him. But they didn't just say, okay, now we move on from the gospel. We move on from the resurrection. They were all together. They all believed it, yet they still kept proclaiming it. They still, the apostles were still proclaiming and pointing to the resurrection, to the gospel. It was a continual refrain among them. It was the reason they were together. It was the reason they had hope. It was the reason they had the spirit. It was the reason they had boldness. It was the reason they believed Jesus was coming again. Because he rose from the dead, ascended, and were told he was going to come back. And so they kept telling each other about it. The gospel and the resurrection were treasured among them. And because of that, we see that it says there was great grace on all of them. Because they didn't outgrow the gospel. They didn't move on. Okay, let's get to the deeper things. Certainly they got to the deeper things, but they had to remember where did we begin where can we never leave the gospel? 
God was working and moving among them, and they were experiencing his grace daily through his spirit and the fellowship of the believers. And so this, for us, is one aspect that is both descriptive and prescriptive for us. The prescriptive aspect, we ought to be a unified church. We ought to be unified, which means we all together and individually are on the same page about Jesus. We're on the same page. He is our Lord, the only one in whom there is salvation. We're together on that. There's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And we're unified in our belief of Jesus. And as we're unified in our belief of Jesus... I believe that we will begin to look more like this description of the church. As we are on the same page about Jesus, as we are reminded continually of the gospel, the gospel that has saved you and is continuing to save you and sanctify you, will look more like this. As we have the gospel permeate every area of our lives, will look more like this church. It will fuel us to live rightly before God. It will allow us to experience great grace daily. And it will cause us to begin to grow as they were growing. Seeing the lost around us come to faith as we boldly declare the word of God. Because we're united on that. We proclaim it together individually, as we are here and as we go. So yes, as we're going to see in a moment, they looked radically different than us in certain ways. But they shouldn't look radically different than us in their unity and their faith. It should be the same. So the church is growing and unified But the church is also generous, and we have an example of that generosity in Barnabas. As the church is growing, as it's unified in their belief, and again, it says they're of one heart and mind, and that one heart and mind was set on living generously. Look at that, verse 32. Uh, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held all things in common. With great power they were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them, and not a needy person among them was found, because they were selling everything they had and bringing the proceeds together. That's the descriptive aspect. Nothing was theirs in their eyes. Everything they had, not mine anymore. It's ours. It's for us. They sold everything they had in order to give to those in need. And because of that, there was not a single needy person among them. That's amazing. Not a single one in thousands Over 5,000 people, not one needy person among them. And it's important, again, I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying here, that when we leave, we need to go call a realtor and sell our houses, take our cars to the dealership and sell them back. I'm not saying that. The Bible's not saying that. But what it is saying 
And what Jesus likely wants us to know is that we ought to be very generous people. We ought to be very generous, likely more generous than we are now because he's blessed us with more than we could ever ask. The church here was seeking to live out God's good design for his people and kingdom. And this comes from Deuteronomy 15. This is God's design for his people before they were going into the promised land. It says, there will be no poor among you. However, because the Lord is certain to bless you in the land and give you it as an inheritance. His desire for the Israelites as they were entering the promised land was that there would be no poor among them. They would all be taken care of, which would mean they would use what God would give them and steward it well and make sure there was no one needy among them. And they remembered the whole time, who gave us this? God did. God gave us this land. God gave us all of these blessings. It's not ours. It's his. So I'm going to use it to bless others, to glorify his name. That's what the church here wanted to do. We see also in the Old Testament, over and over again, a command regarding taking care of the widows, the orphans, the foreigner among them. And it's echoed in the New Testament here as well. And, and this was likely happening here. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This was the posture of the church here in Acts. They gave sacrificially in one heart and mind to make sure everyone was taken care of, not a needy one among them to be found. They wanted to keep themselves unstained from the world around them that was so enamored with wealth and status. We're just going to give it and make sure everyone is taken care of. It's not about the money. It's not about the lands. It's not about the houses. It's about the people. Let's make sure they are taken care of. And as they are taking care of others, they'll be taken care of. We see the great example of this with Joseph, who's called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was given this nickname by the apostles because of how he lived his life. Makes me think, what would people give me a nickname for? Would I get the nickname son of encouragement or would I get the nickname, man, he sleeps a lot? I get the nickname son of encouragement or... Man, he's kind of stingy. What would your nickname be? Barnabas' nickname was Son of Encouragement, and we're going to see him a lot throughout the rest of Acts, and that's what he's going to be doing, encouraging, living for Christ fully. His life brought encouragement, and this act is in line with that truth. He sold a field that he owned and brought all of the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He trusted, you do with it what you will and take care of those who need it. He wanted to love and serve and encourage his brothers and sisters. He wanted to take care of them as best as he could. So he didn't hold anything back. He gave it all. He sold it and he gave all the proceeds to the apostles, to his church. So for us, even though this is a descriptive action, selling all they had, not counting anything as their own, but giving it to the church to care for all the people, 
Don't let that be an excuse to not be sacrificially generous. Saying, well, that's for them, that's great, they sold everything, they gave it. I don't have to do that, so I'm not really going to be generous at all. Because I think that's when we read texts like this, that's kind of our worldly, selfish reaction. That's my reaction a lot of times. That's, that's big. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can live that way. But we, we may not be called to sell all our houses, our lands, our cars, our possessions, and give it away, but, but we ought to make sure we're giving regularly and often. And that includes giving generously to the church, both in tithes and in offerings above and beyond that. I know, we get nervous when we talk money in church. But we tithe to give back to the Lord that he used to bless us with. We tithe so that the church can continue to reach out into the community around us with the gospel and bring them in so that they can learn, so that they can grow, so that we can provide care to those in need, both spiritually and financially. We do that well as a church, I think. But we also not only tithe, we give above and beyond that at times when we're able We have a, a benevolence fund here at church that goes to help those in need, especially here in the church. Maybe you got extra. Give it to that. We have annual offerings like Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, which just started today, and 100% of what you give to those goes for gospel advancement. It goes to give and provide and send missionaries to support them while they're there so that they can continue to do what we're not able to do. Go there and preach the gospel to those who don't know it. But it wouldn't happen if we weren't sacrificially generous. I'd also encourage you to give back to those around you as you're able. So I'm not saying you only have to give to the church not saying you only have to give to these offerings. If you see someone in need and you're able, help them. Love them. Pay for someone's meal that's struggling. Pay for someone's groceries. There are so many ways that we can give generously if we would just be willing to do so like this church did. Again, we don't have to sell everything, but we've probably got a lot more than we need if we would just be willing to give more than we receive. And ultimately, giving generously is part of the way we carry out the great commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. The less generous we become, the more of a chance there is to see the health and unity of the church threatened, which is exactly what happens here in this text. The less generous we are, the more selfish we are, Unity is threatened. Church health is threatened. The gospel advancing is threatened. Because the church can very easily come under attack and unity be threatened like we see here. The church is growing. It's unified. It's giving generously even amid opposition from the outside, threats from the outside. But there's still danger of it being slowed down and broken by those inside 
falling for the schemes and lies of Satan. We're introduced here to the married couple Ananias and Sapphira, who are a part of the church here in Acts. But they're used not for glorifying God here in this moment, but they're used by Satan to try and bring down the unity of the church, to stop its growth by making it a scandal within the church. Satan here is said to fill the heart of Ananias to lie to the spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the property they sold. And later on it says Sapphira tested the spirit of the Lord. They had this planned. It wasn't just happened. They planned it. They sold it and they said, we're going to keep some of it and give the rest and think that, they, that we gave it all. And the reason I believe this happens, they fall for the schemes of Satan, is because they, they took their eyes off of Jesus and the gospel. They became stained by the world that doesn't understand sacrificial generosity, that doesn't understand that the Lord is going to provide. doesn't understand that, and so they keep back part of it. They took their eyes off of Jesus, the one that they all believed in. Greed and pride has entered. And just like we had a good example with Barnabas, we have a very poor example with Ananias and Sapphira. Even a warning, I would say. Ananias and Sapphira did not have to sell it. There's nowhere in here that it says they were told to sell everything and give it to the church. They didn't have to sell it. They didn't have to even give it all that they sold it. They certainly could have gave half and kept half. But that's not what they did. They sold it and pretended to give it all. They acted as if they were being just as generous and sacrificial as everyone else. They chose greed. I want this money. I want this security. They chose pride. I want to look as good as everyone else, though. I want to look as good as Barnabas. I want to get that kind of nickname. So I'm going to sell this. I'm going to give 85%, and I'm going to keep 15 but I'm going to say I gave 100 This is what we sold it for when really we sold it for this. They chose pride. They chose greed. They chose to follow Satan and his lie, and it led to death. It led to death, because that's what following Satan and his lies does. Destruction, death. And here the questions may arise, questions I had. Were they believers or unbelievers here? Was God's act too extreme? To the first question regarding their salvation, I don't have a definitive answer for us because the text doesn't give us one. It doesn't say they were among them but not of them. It just says they were there. So I don't know if they were a believer or an unbeliever. But either way, believer or unbeliever, their actions were not undeserving of what happened. We need to understand that. They were not undeserving of death. 
We see elsewhere in 1 Corinthians that believers can and do sin in such a way that can lead to death, to God judging them with death. 1 Corinthians 11 So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So here we're seeing in the church in Corinth, there were many sick and ill and even died because they were taking the Lord's Supper in a sinful way. God was judging them. If they had just judged themselves, he wouldn't have done that. They would have been spared. But because God is just, because he is good, because he cares for his church, they were disciplined. Not judged with the rest of the world, but disciplined. So again, I don't know if they were believers or not, but their actions were not undeserving of this. So to the question of, is this too extreme? Was God too extreme to kill them both where they stood? The Bible is clear that God is holy and his stance on sin is serious. Very common text, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If they were believers, they still have that gift of eternal life. It's still theirs. They still have it. But if not, They justly received condemnation because of their sin, because it is serious and offensive to God. Again, to that second question on the extremeness of God's response, I don't think it was extreme at all because of God's holiness and his stance on sin, but also this is the baby church. It's just starting here. And for something to jeopardize it going to the ends of the earth, God was not going to allow it. He was not going to let this fester and infect others in the church. For there to be something among them that would cause the unbelievers around them to be put off from the gospel was not acceptable. The only thing that should be coming from the church that is offensive to the world should be the gospel. That's the only thing. The truth of God. That they are sinners in need of a Savior and that Savior's name is Jesus because the world thinks that's offensive and that's the only thing the church should be offending people with. The sin of the people in the church should not be the offensive thing coming from the church. And so I don't think it was extreme here. I think God was just here and good here, even though it's serious and it's hard for us to read it. He cares about his church. He cares about his kingdom. He cares about his holiness. So for us, if we want to protect the unity of the church, 
if we want to become and remain sacrificially generous, and if we want to see God give growth like they see here, we need to do what Ananias and Sapphira failed to do, keep our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. They didn't do that. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And remember, especially this part, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember what Jesus did for you so you won't grow weary and give up in doing good and living as God has called you to live. And that verse we opened up this morning with, 1 Peter, we weren't redeemed by silver and gold, which is what they wanted to treasure. They wanted that silver. They wanted that gold. Let me keep some of it, but pretend like I didn't. I want to treasure that. They didn't treasure what they needed to treasure. Jesus. He is who redeemed us. His blood is the precious thing we treasure. Not worldly things. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We also need to be Holy. Earlier on in that first Peter passage, it says, Be holy because I am holy. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Peter's telling them, You need to live holy because your Father is holy. That means keeping yourself unstained from the world, being set apart from the world, not falling into the traps of the world and traps of Satan which means we take sin seriously as well. We can't be flippant with it. Oh, it's not that big a deal. They gave most of it. No, it's serious. They lied. Lying, no matter what the lie is, is serious. We need to be holy, take sin seriously, because God does. And the last thing we need to do is fear God. The response of those in this church was fear. (laughs) Rightly so. They just died on the spot. And they feared. I I should be kind of fearful. You should be kind of fearful. How many times do we sin? A lot more than we'd like. And God could do that to us. I'm not saying he's going to. But he'd have every right to. Because sin is serious. The people feared God in response to this. Now we don't need to fear eternal judgment from God if we're in Christ. But we should have a healthy fear of God because he is God and we are not. And he disciplines those he loves. To make us more holy. To make us look more like his son who he gave for us. So we need to be careful. Yes, there's opposition from the outside. Let's make sure there's no opposition on the inside. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's be sacrificially generous. 
Let's be holy as the Lord is holy. And let's fear God. And it starts with knowing Jesus, loving Jesus. When we understand sin and we understand his judgment, Jesus is the sweetest thing we could ever see. When we understand that I'm a sinner, I've offended a holy God, I've rebelled against him, I'm his enemy, yet he loved me and he died for me, so I don't have to. That's a, that's a big God. So let's love God, be generous, keep our eyes on Jesus, be holy and fear him. Would you pray with me? God, you are so beyond our understanding. You are incomprehensible. Your holiness is amazing. Your goodness is praiseworthy. And then we look at ourselves and we think, you loved us. You cared for us, really? And you say, yeah, I love you. That's why I sent my son for you. All I'm asking in return, all God is asking in return, love him, obey him, worship him, fear him. God, help us to do those things. Help us to remember that you are God and we are not. So we have no right to judge your actions, to say that they're too extreme, because your actions are done in love, they're done in grace, they're done in mercy. God, help us to be a generous church, a generous people, because you are generous far beyond what we could be. We often treasure those gold and silver pieces when, when we ought to be treasuring the blood of Christ, which is above everything. Help us to treasure that. Not treasure the world and its things, but treasure you and your gospel, and your love displayed there. God, if there's anyone in here this morning who does not know that love, that does not treasure you as they ought to, change their heart. Open their eyes to your goodness and your gospel. Lead them to yourself. God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newton, Kansas. We hope that the biblical truths presented in this podcast will help you in your walk with Jesus. If you do not have a church home, we invite you to join us here at 1045 on Sunday mornings. 
You can find the church address as well as other information about our church at ibcnewton.org. Whether you are able to join us here in person or not, we hope that you will find a Bible-believing church near you to join as you continue to follow Jesus.